And then each year we're able to say on day one of fall 1920, on day one of 2021, and so on and so forth, we're able to see, are we actually getting better? Unless we are willing to share the information and be very transparent about, about what we're doing, we can't really prove, can't really prove our worth. It's just an opinion at that point. Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for being here. This episode is brought to you by Baseball Cloud. Baseball Cloud's revolutionary software platform brings to life the numbers captured by TrackMan and FlightScope. This provides colleges, players, and facility owners around the world a turnkey product, allowing them to analyze their data using key metrics and custom visualizations on one intuitive user interface. Go to BaseballCloud.com to find out how you can have your own data analytics department for your program. Data has a story to tell, and Baseball Cloud gives it a voice. Today's episode features Andrew Wright, a 14-year college baseball coaching veteran, and he enters his fourth year as the head coach for the University of Charleston, West Virginia. In 2018, they guided the program to a record-breaking year, breaking a program record of 36 wins, including an MEC Southern Division Championship, MEC Tournament Championship, and UC's first appearance in an NCAA Regional. Andrew's brilliant track record of recruiting and player development has paid off for UCWV in what has proven to be a remarkable turnaround. And the Golden Eagles improved their win total from a pedestrian 16 wins in 2016 to a staggering 34 in 2017 and 36 in 2018. In 14 years of coaching, Wright has coached over 50 players who have been drafted or signed professional contracts, including four who have reached the major leagues. And in this episode, we go all in on not only player development, but coaching development. Coach Wright generously shares his wisdom on how to evaluate, recruit, and develop players. But we also spend a bulk of our conversation on how to empower coaching staffs, and he shares a ton of practical ways to do so. If you're enjoying the podcast, please share it, and thank you for those who share already. If you would, also write a review or rate the show on whatever platform you listen to, and it would mean a lot to me and it would also help grow the show. This episode is so good, and here is Andrew Wright. Coach Wright, welcome to the show. Appreciate you having me, Jonathan. Absolutely, and so just going back a little bit to about a year and a half ago, you said that you listened to the podcast at uh, the convention in Indianapolis, and I was just completely floored, and that was one of my first really (laughs) cool moments of, hey, this podcast, people actually listen to it, and so... Uh, you know, just getting to know you over time and, and getting yeah. to see you present at the ABCA last year, which you did an absolutely phenomenal job. And and I, I thought you were a good fit for the show for a long time. And so I'm so glad sure. that we could get together today and, and talk about player development and coach development, which is a huge passion of mine as well. But again, thank sure. you for coming on. And, and, you know, for our listeners who might not know you as well as I do, can you just give them a little short snapshot of why you got into coaching and where you're at? Sure. Well, uh, well, I, obviously, I want to start back with the Indianapolis thing. It was a bit serendipitous. I remember walking by you, and I was like, I, I tapped uh, Andy Hoyer, the assistant that was with me. I was like, hey, that's Jonathan Gellner. I, I'm going to go say hi to that guy. So, so it was a pretty cool moment for sure. But uh, and I'm, I'm just awesome. beyond uh, beyond impressed with the work that you do, and and thank you for giving me the opportunity. But uh, to your question, uh, why did I get into coaching? I grew up in a household of uh, my mother was a elementary school teacher for 30 plus years. My father was a a baseball and a hockey coach and whatever my brother and I uh, were into. So 
you know, I got to see, I got to see behind the curtain a little bit and, and just kind of became a, just how it, you know, how I was developed, I guess, uh, as you think of it that way, we, we, uh, were a part of the frustrated faithful there until about 2004 when the Red Sox actually won. So we watched every, we had, uh, the new England sports network on our TV all the time and, and all of that good stuff. So it, we were constantly talking baseball, uh, my father and I, so it was a really cool atmosphere to grow up in, to be in a, uh, to be in a household one where you're, it, you're around a bit of a self-made baseball man because he didn't play baseball growing up. Um, and to see that the passion that he had for learning and challenging what he thought he knew about the game, I think was a really good start to, to my career and something I certainly appreciate to this day. Oh, you definitely have to have a lot of respect for one dads who do that for sure. Yeah. No, that's, that's, yeah. that's awesome. And I, I love that. And I love hearing about that. And so let's just yeah. go ahead and, and dive full into, you know, player development and, you guys, that is a huge emphasis in your program. And so say sure. say that you recruited me and I'm an uh -huh. incoming freshman. What do I expect in the fall whenever we get there? And let's just kind of uh, walk through that. Sure. So it, it's a it's largely a mix of development, evaluation, and then also just setting expectations. Because the, the thing that's unique about our program, and probably not unique for a lot of Division II schools, but we have any, in a given year, we have anywhere from 47 to 55 players for whom we're responsible. Uh, so we have to get very creative to make sure that everyone is getting the opportunity to develop, be evaluated, and for them to feel like we're investing in them. So what we actually do is we we play around with our our off days. So we'll we'll actually take our group of offensive players, split them into three teams, and then we'll rotate off days based off of team one will play team two, team three will be off, and so on and so forth. Okay. And then with the pitchers, we try to we put them on a weekly schedule, and they're on a different off day schedule if they throw on a Monday. Maybe they'll take a Wednesday off or whatever it is, or a Wednesday or a Friday or whatever. So you have to have two uh, two off days now uh, in Division Two in the fall. So you know we got to get creative with it. But the way that we're looking at it is, and the way that we're choosing to look at it here in the future, uh, starting next fall, is we're actually going to shrink the evaluation phase and we're going to increase the development phase. So what we're going to be doing is pushing the the, the evaluation. We want to catch guys right when they're done with summer ball and let them compete early in September. And then from there, we're going we're gonna to kind of prescribe some development plans and things like that, and then take from October, November, December into January and treat that almost like a professional offseason where they're able to physically uh, invest in their own physical development. And then we'll start ramping things back up no different than a, a spring training would in the professional setting. So that's kind of what we're looking at. We do believe a lot in in the player development, as you, as you said, because I think at the division two level, you can't just recruit your wins. You've got to recruit and develop them. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen at every level, but you really can find, you can find some real diamonds in the rough. If you find a really, really athletic kid who just needs, just needs the attention and needs the resourcing in order to, to invest in his development. So that's kind of how we look at our, at our schedule. It's a bit of a 10,000 foot view, but it, it, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we'll, we'll break down and we'll do, uh, a lot of small group skill work just to make sure that our guys are, are staying sharp and, and doing a lot of, uh, measurables and things like that to make sure we're actually getting them better and not just feel like we're getting them better. Sure. And so after, during your evaluation phase, are you guys doing just some baseline testing? And I know you guys have a ton of tech. Do you mind uh, yeah. running us through that? Sure. So yeah. And, and one of the cool things that we do is we do, uh, we'll do a, almost like a pro day, the very first day that we're together as a team. And what we have done is we have taken, and now some of the measurements that we're using are probably a little bit outdated, but we'll go 60, 
uh, exit velo, uh, positional arm strength, things like that, just to get a baseline of what we're dealing with physically uh, and holding our, our recruiting and our development processes accountable. Now we're able to add in to those measurements, we're able to add in the information we can get from Rapsodo, the information we can get from the blast motion sensor. And then each year we're able to say on day one of uh, fall 1920, on day one of 2021, and so on and so forth, we're able to see, are we actually getting better? Because, you know, I felt like unless we are willing to share the information and be very transparent about, about what we're doing, we can't really prove, uh, we can't really prove our worth. It's just an opinion at that point. So we try to measure as much as we can, uh, and we try to hold our guys accountable to it, but we also hold our own development processes accountable as well, because if, if we're trying, if we're acting like we're trying to get guys better and they're not actually getting better, then we have to do something different as well. Yeah, I understand. And that's actually, you know, something that I've talked about lately is, is you've got an assistant mm-hmm. coach and, you know, when, when, when we've got 40 hitters, let's say you've got 40 hitters and you've got, you know, your blast and your rap soto, that's instant feedback for them to understand, okay, was that good or was that bad? And what are you working on today? Sure. And that's just any time that we can be objective. I think that mm-hmm. you're absolutely, you know, hitting the nail on the head. That, that it's just it's gonna it's gonna take out the middleman, and it, it's no longer me versus you. Now it's okay. Here's what the best hitters in the world are doing. Here's what they look like. And now let's you know try and merge some of your individual movement patterns and everything that you've got into try and get better every single day. So I really like that. Sure. It sounds like you guys are competing all fall. So kind of walk us through what you guys are competing with, uh, competing against, or any of your favorite competitions. Sure. So we, um, you know, obviously when we're competing in the fall, we, we measure the same things that we're going to measure in the spring because we want to keep, you know, a lot of times people go out and compete in the fall, but they'll be comp- competing at something that doesn't necessarily funnel up to wins. And I can't pinpoint what that may or may not be, but for us, we measure the quality at bats that we use and the metrics that we use for that. We we developed a quality base running metric. We also measure that just to get a baseline to see if we can continue to improve to make good decisions on the bases. Uh, and then we're also looking into you know weighted on base average. Uh, one thing that we actually started to measure this year was actually anti quab. So a lot of people talk about quality at bats from the from the offensive standpoint. And it hit me this summer as I was thinking about some things. I was like, why are we not measuring the ability for pitchers to limit quabs? So that's where we've come up with an anti-quab score. And all it is is just it, it is essentially a quab score for the pitchers okay. and uh, trying to identify, hey, here's the baseline of what we want you to stay under. Uh, and here are some because the quabs really is a behavioral measurement more than it is an ability measurement in a lot of ways. So our guys being able to go out and, and play in a competitive environment and and behave in that competitive environment in a way that's going to limit the other team's ability to do damage. Sure. So that, that's been, that's been a really cool measurement. Something we're kind of toying around with right now. But one of the things that Thomas Stallings, who is our graduate assistant and our hitting coach the last couple of years before Ryan Hunt took over, uh, what he did is he would track those, those quabs and he, he would define that if, we were 1.5 and above and the metric. I know that 1.5 doesn't mean anything to anybody, but if we were 1.5 and above, we were undefeated in the games where we were in the, in the last two years. So why would we not make that our bench, our baseline? Right. And, and that's where, that's what we're trying to shoot for. So then on the other side of it, when we were 1.0 or below, we only won 10% of our game. So what we have is our offense is shooting to create a, a quad score of a 1.5 or above. And we have our, our pitching, shooting to get a 1.0 or below. Okay. So now we're teaching these guys in the fall and 
we're, we're kind of educating these guys on these are the things that we're trying to look for. These are the things that are important to us. Now try to go out and, and manipulate these numbers with the way that you play and the way that you develop. I really like that a lot. And I, I'll be honest, I can really appreciate simplicity because the, mm-hmm. you know, the more shows that I do and the more clinics that I watch and the more coaches that I talk to, there's just so many things that we can measure, but just trying mm-hmm. to figure out what works for you. And, and that, that's an awesome process. I really, I, I can appreciate that a lot. Sure. I appreciate that. It's a, uh, we probably gather more information than we can actually process at this point, but the beauty is in the application, right? Like we've got to make sure that our guys don't get bogged down by the details. There's some guys that don't care. They don't care about the Rapsodo numbers. They care about, well, how are you going to make sure that when I get in the game, I can throw this pitch the way that I want to, or I can, I can hit a, an inside pitch or whatever it is. That's what they want. So we have to be very good filters of the information, very good stewards of the information to make yes. sure that we're, we're manipulating it in a manner that they can, they can actually ingest and actually use for, for their benefit. Absolutely. We, the last thing we want to do is bog them down with numbers that don't mean anything to them. Sure. Sure. And you know, the, the challenge is, and that's taking the beauty of the theory of it all, making it applicable as you know, you see, and, and, and I, I troll social media all the time to try to find new ideas and things like that. And mm-hmm. a lot of times you come across people who have these beautiful theories of how they should play the game. But to be honest with you, the people I pay the most attention to are the ones that show the vulnerability in their processes mm. and understand that the beauty is actually in the, in the application. Because I, I explained to our guys, in, in a, I think it was to the pitchers in a pitching meeting not too long ago, that the world is shifting to the point where your knowledge of a subject and, and how, to, how to do things is irrelevant without the ability to apply it. So that's, right. really where, that's really where we come in as coaches to be that filter and make sure that they can take they can take the information because a lot of guys are coming in a hell of a lot more educated than I am, even as 18 year olds. I've been in college baseball now for 20 years. So mm-hmm. in order to stay ahead of the curve there, you've got to show them that you can take their appreciation of the knowledge and and actually turn it into actionable information. Right. No, I'm, I'm right there with you. And, and I, I really like that approach. And you mentioned social media, too. It's it's one thing to recognize that there is a problem, and it's another thing mm-hmm. to come up with a plan to try and fix it. And I, I think that that's mm-hmm. where we are really good as coaches of watching other kids or other players or other coaches and recognizing problems. But, you know, what are we doing to fix those problems or what are we doing to help with that process? And, and I think that's where that's where the next step needs to be is is we finally figured out some of the things that really work in baseball. But how do we fix it? And how do we fix it faster? Because the only person that benefits with that is the players. And and it's one Mm -hmm. thing to tell them that they have a problem. And it's another thing to offer them assistance to, to fix it. And, and uh, sorry, a little bit on my personal soapbox there, but uh, I guess that's the teacher in me. We we don't want to give them the textbook, tell them that they need to learn it and then catch up at at the end of the semester. But uh, you guys are really, really into building the culture and you guys are putting a ton of graphics on social media and I love that. And, and it's really brought a lot of awareness to your program. I, and I'm guessing that you've seen that as well. But I want to know, what are you guys doing on a daily basis or you know weekly basis that is really getting your guys closer or building the culture and, and getting your standards you know ingrained into their systems? And if you could give us some practical examples of that, that would be awesome. Sure. Well, I, I don't know that, that we have it summed up as well as some, some other people who 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 have a lot of really good ideas about culture. Uh, but I like, I like to think that I like the environment that we've created here. And I think that before you talk about culture, you've got to, you've got to establish that line of expectations 
uh, where this is what it's going to look like. Because I, I think I talk about it in my uh, my presentation in Dallas is that when we are coaching people, we we have already established this informal so, social contract of what it's going to look like. And it's our job to make sure that we stay above that line. So if you're looking for the answer of, you know, do we go on camping trips or do we go bowling? Like that's not the sort of stuff that we do. I think uh, I think people would be very underwhelmed to know what our process is to build the the environment that we've built. But what we expect uh, with us and for us is just that we want to be candid with each other and we want to be vulnerable and and we really want to be real with each other because I think that's one thing that as a young coach I did not do. And I think it really translated into the environment that we created uh, early in my coaching career because I was two different people. I was a, I was a different person at home than I was at school or at work. And and the further I've gotten away from that, and the closer I've gotten to just being myself in all situations, the more people can trust what's what's going to come next out of my mouth. And I think that when when people understand that, it's a lot easier to just go out and manipulate, not manipulate, but it's a lot easier to go out and just live live in the culture that you want to create because mm-hmm. I think culture is culture is a product of your behaviors. It's not a, it's not a thing that you do. It's a, it is a, it's not one particular thing you do. I think it's a sum of the behaviors that you choose to employ. Sure. And that's, that's really what, that's what we want our guys to understand. And we expect, I think if you were going to look for a defining thing about the environment that we've created is that we expect feedback to, to kind of flow up and down the organization and, and the one thing that we're very sensitive to is people who aren't willing to take or give candid feedback. That's mm-hmm. when we notice, that's when we know that there, there needs to be a little bit more education there to let that guy know that, Hey, this is not an attack on you. This is an opportunity for us to just, to just move forward as a program and things like that. So I think the things that our guys hear, hear me say all the time is that, you know, our results are, are, are a product of your people and your process. And it's, it, I think our, our culture and our environment is a product of that. So when we look at it, and, and the other thing too, I, I would even interject that ownership is a big part of what we do. We we expect like, I think I take as much ownership. I take it anytime I can get it. Like mm-hmm. if something is breaking down, I don't care at what level it broke down. That that is a reflection on the the process that we have in place. So if the process is broken down, then we we look at there. There's a lack of one of three things. It's either a lack of education, it's a lack of empowerment, or it's a lack of accountability. So. Yeah, that's good. You know, if you look at in a lot of cases and we did this this fall, so this is me being a little bit vulnerable here. We did this this fall where we gave so much, so much autonomy to our players that there wasn't enough education there. So we gave them we gave them the autonomy. So we empowered them. Right. Mm -hmm. And then we were holding them accountable. But the problem was it was a flawed system because we hadn't educated them enough on here are the guidelines on what it needs to look like. So then there are other situations, and I've been in this situation too, where you go out and you educate your people really well, and you empower them. Hey, hey, go do a good job with this. And then on the back end, you aren't holding them accountable. There's you're going to break that process is going to break down. So when our guys look at what our environment looks like, and they say, and they understand that our results are a product of our people and our process, it's a heck of a lot easier to navigate your day. So you know where the you know where the problem is. So if we have guys doing stuff off the field uh, that they shouldn't be doing, it's that's not a reflection on that person as much as it's a reflection on me building an environment where they understand how important it is to do the right thing off the field. Okay. If we can't if we can't execute a bunt defense, it's not a lack of that guy's ability to play the game. It's a lack of a it, it's a lack of me somewhere along the way either not educating him on how important this rep is, 
or putting him in a situation to to learn the things that he needs to master, or it's a, it's a breakdown of my ability to hold him accountable. So that's where those three things, I would say at the core of it, that's really what it comes down to. Again, we're not, we're not, uh, we talk about championship behaviors and things like that, but mm-hmm. we're not a big, you know, I'm not going to pop off about culture that much. Uh, we just look at it as the environment that we create and that's just the expectation that we have every day that we show up. Oh, I absolutely love that. And, uh, a co- you know, we, we talk about culture a lot and you hear that it's kind mm-hmm. of a buzzword and. Uh, so a couple of months ago, maybe I, I was listening to Brian Kite, uh, Focus Three, and and he talked about culture as three things: it's it's your belief, your behavior, and your experience. And mm-hmm. he talked about you know everyone has standards and everyone has things on a wall, but if you're walking in and to a dugout or to the field and you don't see those things, then that's not your culture. Those are just words. Yep. Those are words on a wall. And so I sure. really I really appreciate the vulnerability there, and and it's something mm-hmm. that obviously that is a testament to you and wanting to get better. And something that, that I, you know, that, that for, for men in general, and I don't, you know, I think that this is a, a trend that a lot of guys have is we don't like to, to hear that we are wrong. And I'm trying to navigate <laughs> this in a way that, because if you came at me in a way that you're like, Hey, you're, you know, you're wrong with it, but I just want to really know, you know, as a head coach. And let's say that I'm your assistant coach and I may be doing something that isn't exactly what you wanted. How mm-hmm. would you have a conversation with me that still gives me that ownership, doesn't break me down, but I learn from it? Because I, those are really, really hard conversations to have. Oh, no question. So I think it goes back to kind of the tenets of emotional intelligence and empathy and things like that. So if I have a if I have a conversation with Jonathan Gellner, it's going to be different than a conversation that I'm going to have with one of the other 60 people that I'm in charge of mm-hmm. in this program. So, and, and we talked about it in our pre-fall staff hideaway meetings with our staff is that you've almost got to act like an adapter. So you've got the information that needs to be learned or the behavior that needs to be changed on one side of it. You've got the player or the staff member or whoever's being held accountable on the other side. And we can do it the old school way where we just say, Hey, you got to figure this out. Well, you've got to say things in a way that, People don't feel let down, put down, or shut down, mm-hmm. right? You got to say things in a way that people can hear the information, that they're they're motivated to actually do something with the information, and they they understand what you're saying. Uh, so a lot of times that message can change over. If we have sixty people, that's going to be at sixty different applications of that message. So we what I talked about with our guys in that pre-fall staff hideaway meeting was we have to act as an adapter. And the only way our adapter is going to work is if we build strong enough relationships that we understand what makes this guy tick, what makes him not tick, uh, things like that. So there is there is also power when when someone breaks down. And this is just something that I have noticed when something does something, or some sorry when someone does something that you don't like and, and you want to hold them accountable for it. It is very important to also point out your role in that process as the leader. Mm-hmm. because it's very easy to go attack somebody and say, Hey, you screwed that up. Well, I think you got to show a little bit of vulnerability on yourself. Like if, if you can attach some sort of a, some sort of a story or some sort of a, a way to make it real to them and make you seem a little bit more real as a person, rather than just the person who's the harbinger of bad news, mm-hmm. then they're a little more likely to engage in a conversation. And the, and the big thing that I've talked about with our guys is you have to almost publicly announce that you've got thick skin and you're willing to take whatever they have to say 
And, but you also, whatever feedback that you get from them, if it's, if it's not what you wanted to hear, if you want to get that type of feedback again in the future, then you need to watch how you, how you manage your reaction. Right. That's something I had to learn really, really quick. Uh, and unfortunately, I don't think I learned it as quick as I, I probably should have. But learning how to listen is, is a very big piece and being able to really plug that adapter in and, and get through to the people when they need to hear feedback. That was a great answer. And you know, that was that was my next part is, you know, what what does it look like if you have an assistant who has a great idea and he comes to you, you mm-hmm. want to give him that ownership. And I, I really like that. And and again, if you shut him down, I mean, that's just they're they're not going to come back to you. It's it's you're almost having a relationship with your assistants as we're have as the assistants are having with their players. We're trying we're sure. we are well, coaches are more equal than the players. Obviously the coaches have the final say in things for the most part, but mm-hmm. you want to build that relationship first. You want to present it in a way and then you've got to have feel for each person's individual personality and how they react to different situations. And what were the three words that you said? They that you have to do this, this and this. Do, do you remember what, what you said don't, earlier? Don't let them make don't let them feel let down, put down or shut down. Yeah, that's awesome. I really like that. Yeah. No, that's that's so fantastic. You, so yeah, and we've all been in that situation before because we have that emotional reaction. You think about the last time that you took feedback that you didn't like. Mm-hmm. Think about physically, how did you feel? Was there that emotion of like like your heart starts pumping, you start to feel hot? You know what you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. that's that's the sort of stuff that when we understand how we uh, how we hear feedback it's a little bit easier for us to to fix it and go at somebody a little bit differently. Sure. And I know there there are a lot of people that listen, I played for people, I played for several different coaches whether it be through hockey or baseball or whatever it is, and different people had very different approaches. There were some people that were like, here's my message, I'm giving it to you, it's your job to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And I understand the value in that because sometimes you're going to be talked to that way. But if you as a leader is responsible for the outs- the output of an entire group, then you've got to care a little bit more about how convenient it is for you to, to get the message across. Because that's a matter of convenience, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. If you send one message to 60 people, that is, I don't want to call it selfish, because I think that's the wrong way to say it, but that's a matter of convenience on your part, because you're not willing to dig deep enough uh, in order to take that adapter and say, here's how I'm going to talk to Jonathan, here's how I'm going to talk to Ryan Hunt, here's how I'm going to talk to Anthony Zona, and so on down the line. Mm-hmm. So those that's kind of one of the things that I have noticed over my time uh, in coaching is that you can you can have harder conversations with people and you can have you need to have easier conversations with people. But at the end of the day, you don't want to mitigate the message down the, or the theme of the message down to to lessen its impact. You can still send an impactful message without attacking them to where they have a physical reaction to the feedback. Let me take a few seconds to tell you guys about OnBaseU. OnBase University is an organization that studies how the human body moves in baseball and softball. They offer certification seminars that teach coaches, trainers, and medical professionals how to assess an athlete's physical ability to perform movement patterns that are specific to hitting and pitching. For example, they just put up a blog on their website, OnBaseU.com, that discussed why hip internal rotation is important in hitting and how they evaluate it with their OnBaseU screen. If you want to learn more about OnBaseU, I did a podcast with OnBaseU founder, Dr. Greg Rose, episode 78, who talked about this and modeled the screen after golf assessments that he created for TPI. They are hosting pitching and hitting seminars in Newark, Houston, and Chicago over the next few months. 
and I will be attending the one in Houston, and I hope to see you there. Well, and you talked about earlier about uh, you guys get away for a hideaway or, uh, or just a getaway, really. And, sure. you know, I, something that I want to ask you specifically is or and give you kind of a situation to, to work through. But I've I worked for some head coaches who I literally have I didn't know, you know, what they wanted, what what yeah. what their rules were, what their standards were, where we did in certain situations. And as an assistant coach. I'm looking at the players and if they do something that I didn't or they didn't know what to do or if they if they did something wrong and I have to look back at myself and go did I actually teach them what I was wanting them to do and yeah. if I did then that's a different conversation than if I didn't because if I didn't then that's my fault and if I did yeah. then that's something that we obviously need to find the disconnect there but how do you how do you get the program all on the same page of all the different and you've got so many different things that you're trying to do, but I just really want to sure. ask, you know, how do you get all of your coaches on the same page about as many things as you can? Uh, that's uh, that's the value of the st- of the uh, the staff hideaway. Mm-hmm. So now this year in particular, we did a really, I thought we did a really good job of getting everybody on the same page, and then we added a couple of people, and then we obviously lost Dylan Mazzo to the Angels organization. So we have some different people playing some different roles. And we're trying to figure some things out, but I, I would liken it to just, you got to communicate and you got to understand as the leader that you're the 10,000 foot view guy and you got to zoom in when, when you need to, to provide the appropriate directions. But at, at the end of the day, you still got to say here from a 10,000 foot view, this is what it should look like. Now you go ahead and, and make that happen for me. Right? So the, the idea of if that doesn't get done, let's go back to the educate empower and hold accountable piece. If that doesn't get done the way that I wanted it to, then I either didn't educate them well enough on what I wanted the objective to be. I didn't empower them enough, or maybe I like maybe I was too uh, micromanaging or or anything like that. Or I wasn't I wasn't paying enough attention to it to hold them accountable when they needed to be held accountable. So I, I look at it. That's a challenge for me, and I'm going to be honest with you. It's a really exciting Lord. one because I I really like. I like the role that I'm in mm-hmm. because I, I like the fact that we have eight people on staff. I like that next year we're probably going to have about 10 people on staff uh, because I like that challenge of getting the 10,000 foot view message all the way down to the streets so that we can win at an incredibly high level. Yeah. And it's not just on the field. You're winning with your personal development with your players. Mm-hmm. And sure. you're developing a ton of coaches, like you just mentioned. You either hired or you hired a great guy that got yeah. that got signed with a or that is now coached with the Angels. But you also helped yeah. him develop as a coach as well. And so let's sure. let's go ahead and dig into that. And so uh-huh. you you're gonna have you've got eight guys on staff now. You're gonna have ten next year. How are you yeah. doing your best to develop them personally? I think it starts with the first conversation that we have is what what is your what are you what are you doing this for? Like what is your dream job. And then we work backwards from there. So I think, I I think a lot of times we miss the boat and I did early in my career, we missed the boat on what the value of the experience can provide for the people in your program. What I want people to do is say, well, I want, if I want to get into scouting or if I want to be a division one hitting coach, or I want to be in pro ball or whatever it is, Whatever they come in and their answer to that question, what is it you want to be doing with your career? We can find a way to tailor our experience to match the things they need to learn in order to create separating skills. 
So that that's the first thing is I, I like to have uh, within that selection process, I like to have that conversation of what, what are we working towards here? Because we have enough guys on staff and we can create even more roles if we need to uh, in order to clear a path for these guys to live in whatever that separating skill is. And that, so that, again, that is the first thing. And, and I would actually, I'm going to supersede that with the first thing is the most important part of coach development is coach selection. So you've got to pick the right people. Mm-hmm. You got to pick people who, who care enough about what you're doing. You got to pick people who, who care enough to learn, who are vulnerable enough to, to be okay with taking that feedback. So, but, but going from that, you pick the right people, you establish the expectations. And then after that, it's about constant communication and just letting them live in whatever their, their range of responsibilities or their lane is. Um, not to say that they can't have input on other lanes, but the things that they're solely responsible for, giving them the autonomy after you've educated them enough, empower them enough to go to go say, like, this is this is your show, go run it. Mm-hmm. And then be there as kind of a facilitator for their ability to continue to improve. Uh, so, you know, we go, we do the the pre-fall staff hideaway meetings, like I told you about. We have morning meetings uh, every in the fall, every Thursday. We had a staff resource meeting. Their weekly staff resource meeting, which was really cool because we had a couple of people. We had a, a minor league strength coach who was passing through town after the season was over. He came and talked to the guys, and I said, "Hey, we're doing this weekly staff resource." Here's the, before he got there. I said, "Here's the resource. Listen to the podcast. Come in. I want you to act as though you're a member of our staff." And it was just awesome to have him just swing through town and be a part of that. Uh, and then we also had uh, one of my former players and assistants uh, as a double A pitching coach with the Twins organization. And he did the same thing. And he always brings uh, like a lot of really, really good information to the table as well. So it was neat to bring people from the outside into what we were doing as a staff yeah, and be able cool. to talk, uh, talk about it as well. And then at the end of the fall, I had them I actually had them all do uh, in services for us. So anything that they were working on in the realm of player development or any sort of analytic thing and have them present to our coaching staff, because there was some stuff that they were doing that I didn't even know, like, it was just, I knew what we were trying to work towards, but I didn't know how we were trying to work towards getting there. So it was really important for me to be able to be conversational in the things with our players. Because if I walk into the, if I walk into our ox gym or I walk into our cage, our indoor cages, and I do, I'm just like, wow, this is like, what's going on here. Then I look like I have no idea what's going on. So if I can have them show me what's going on, then I can go in and engage in some conversations about what we're doing with the blast motion sensor, what, you know, we were talking about optimal ball flight. We were talking about all this stuff that I that was outside of my lexicon uh, as a hitting coach when I was a hitting coach, you know, six, seven years ago. So I need to be kind of brought up to speed on some of that stuff. And then, you know, the other piece, I think the other piece to it is just from a, a coach development standpoint is how we choose to talk to each other. Uh, I think that's the we can do all these fancy meetings and, and all of these in, uh, resource meetings and and in services. But if we don't have daily conversations about what it's supposed to look like and hold each other accountable, then it's, it's not going to work. You're just, you're doing it for show. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of times guys will come to us with ideas and, and I'll be like, can you prove that? Like, it sounds like that's a very fluffy opinion and just challenging and not, not, I'm not being, I'm not being mean. I'm being just the way I expect to, to communicate in our organization. You know, we, we have developed an, an allergy to evidenceless opinions being presented as fact. And I, I want them to know what that feels like to be challenged that way. Because it's very easy as coaches. And I, I know this was the way it was for me 15 years ago. It's still this way for me now a little bit. 
where we have these guiding principles that we can't back up. And we have these things that like, Hey, this is how I feel. Well, it's how you feel, but does it actually work and how can you prove it? So that's where I think the biggest piece of the development that you could do for your coaches and the people that are under your charge is be very, very candid and very transparent and, and very truthful with them. I think that's the that's the biggest thing because if, if you're just allowing half baked ideas to get through and get down to the player development level, then you're going to your player development process is going to be broken. It's going to be broken in a hurry. It's going to be exposed very quickly when you get to playing games in the spring. No, I love your your process, and it it starts with you being a learner first. And mm-hmm. I, I think that that's the culture that that you're growing. And there's there's a lot of different things that that I want to kind of dig into with this. And the mm-hmm. first one is, you know, for myself being an assistant coach and for the for the head coaches listening, this is what as an assistant coach who wants to learn and wants to get better. This is what we feed off of. We want to be communicated with. We want to be given mm-hmm. opportunities to share. We want to be given opportunities to share what we're learning and not necessarily that it's just for me. It's just we all at times get tired of being the only one that's learning something and not being able to share it with anybody else to get feedback. And that's where you get that sure. uh, that feedback from one person or another, because I may have a great idea in my mind. And before I implement it with the kids, uh, if I go to my head coach and he doesn't necessarily think that that's true, then it may not be. And that way I don't mm-hmm. waste my time with the kids doing something that, like you m- mentioned, is just an opinion or a feel for me, but it's not necessarily mm-hmm. fact. And I'll just be honest, if you're wanting a a culture of guys who really want to learn and grow the game, then then this is mm-hmm. definitely something that I think that we're lacking as far as coaching staffs go. I think there are a lot of individuals that do this, but how sure. much better can our conversations be if we're all doing this? And how much better are our players going to get? And so I, I want to tip my cap to you for that because that's extra time that you're having to take out of your week to be able to mm-hmm. do this stuff. But I, I think that you're hitting the nail on the head as far as your growing coaches. You're obviously doing that at a great rate, and your players are going to be extremely or benefit extremely from this. But I want to circle back around to the interview, and you talked about picking the right guys. And I, do you have any great interview questions? Because I, I remember one that I interviewed in, in Texas, and so I'm interviewing, and, and it's, it's for uh, the teaching position. And our principal, who I really hadn't gotten to know very well yet, she goes, what rules do you break and why? Yeah, I love that. And I, I absolutely love that. And it, it was like a one of those deer in the headlights because I didn't want to lie yeah. because we all have different things that we toe the line with, right? So, and, and I asked her about this later and I said, why do you ask that? And she goes, well, I know if you say you don't, then you're completely trying to BS me. And two, yeah. if, if nothing comes to mind, then you're obviously not very intentional about what you're trying to do, but it just yeah. almost just froze me. And I, I, to be honest, I feel like I, I do a pretty good job of communicating and, and I've, I've heard a lot of different questions like the, you know, and so it, that one just completely froze me because you're going into an interview and it's like, Hey, tell me about your background. And that one, I'd never heard anybody ever mention before in their entire life. And so it froze me and I just. I thought that that was really good. It always stood out to me. But what are some different things that you do to really get to the heart of who a person is and you know why they're doing what they're doing? I, I think basically asking how, and this is one that came up for me. I was approached about an opportunity in the fall, and they they had uh, they had asked me uh, what is something you used to believe 
uh, that you don't believe anymore. And, and I, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm doing the question and I'm, I'm trying to fill it out. And then I'm like, wow, that's, uh, that's pretty, that's a pretty powerful question. And then I, I read an article, I think it was about, uh, and I tweeted about it also. And there were three things. It was talking about intellectual humility. I was talking about Jeff Bezos or Bezos, however you say his name, uh, from Amazon. And it, it was a similar question is, is what is something you used to think to be true and, and you don't believe anymore? I, I think that is one that shows the ability to challenge your, your own thoughts, because if somebody says, oh, I haven't, I haven't changed my mind about anything, well, then we're going to have a problem, <laughs> you, you know, that we're probably not right, going yeah. to, not that we wouldn't get along in a social setting, but in mm-hmm. a work setting, that would be very challenging. Sure. You know, I want people who are willing to challenge their own opinions. I, I want people who are willing to hold their own opinions as accountable as they hold someone else's. I think that's what we see. We almost leave some things are so far off limits uh, when we talk about baseball. Like it's like almost like a taboo question if you're talking about hitting or this or that. Well, let's have a let's have a let's have a conversation about this. And why do you feel the way that you feel? And and understanding that you're not challenging them understanding in these in these interview processes i'm not challenging you as a person i'm challenging your ability to to answer this question sure. <laughs> because i, I want to know what like what do you really you know where do the limits of your stubbornness end where where does it end mm-hmm. uh because sometimes a lot of a lot of times it, you know being stubborn is a is a in a lot of ways is a is a poor way to coach it, at least i've found that for myself Mm-hmm. I've been so stubborn. There were things I did five and six years ago when I was working with hitters that if I look back, I look back at it and I'm like, I did a disservice to those guys sure. because I was so hell bent on doing it one way that I wasn't willing to listen. So if somebody's not willing to have that conversation with me, it, it's probably they don't have a real open mind or they don't, uh, they're not a real good listener. That's a good one. Um, yeah. So I really, I really enjoy that one in that respect. But a lot of times it's, it's just basically like how you, how are you going to manage different situations? I was talking to a future candidate yesterday and, and basically I, I outlined a situation for him and asked him how he would handle it. Mm-hmm. And his, his answer was, was outstanding. It showed, it showed some grace. It showed some humility. It showed the ability to manage a situation that otherwise, you know, and it was for a strength coaching position. And it was, it was one of those things that were usually, you know, strength coaches, you're thinking you're going to do it my way, highway type of stuff. This mm-hmm. guy had a, this guy had a really, really intelligent response to it, at least from my perspective. Uh, so I like to outline certain situations they may be dealing with, but I would say the one about changing your mind is, is the, uh, is probably my new favorite one. That is a really good one. And for some reason or another, I've, I've gravitated toward these. And uh, there was another one that, that I heard, uh, I can't, somebody tweeted it out a couple of weeks ago and I, uh, I can't remember who it was, but they said, who is somebody that mentored you? Like, who is your biggest mentor? And mm-hmm. what do you do? Or what do you think they were wrong? Mm-hmm. And that one was something that I looked into myself and went, man, that's because you have these guys that you think, you know, hung the moon. But yeah. where do you disagree with that person is something that you're not only taking and stealing from them, but you're also formulating your own ideas in a way that mm-hmm. makes you believe the way that you do. And I, I thought that one was really, really, really good. And yeah, I like that one because I think you can miss a lot of times you can misdiagnose the source of the impact yeah. that people have right. on you. And you can say like, I have a great deal of respect for my college coach. Mm-hmm. And you know, there are certainly, there are certainly ways that we're very different 
and they're, you know, you think about hockey coaches that I've had in the past and, and, and baseball coaches I've had in the past. And it's, it's that same sort of thing. You've got to be your own person, but understand the actual, like when you think kindly about someone, where is that actually coming from? Because we're all human. There are always going to be, there are going to be things that we don't like about somebody or anything like that. So I, I really think the whole idea of misdiagnosing the source of the impact is, is something that would really come out of that exercise that you just, you just talked about. Perfect. I like it. So with, within what you guys are doing, uh, you've already talked about several different unique things that I'll be honest, whenever I watched your ABCA, I said, why aren't more people doing this? And I, and I thought, <laughs> you know, just from a, again, from a guy who wants to continually learn and is in a, mm -hmm. I guess maybe I'm jaded because I feel like we follow, you follow the right people on Twitter and you listen to yeah. podcasts, you think a lot of different people are trying to do these things. And so I'm like, well, well mm -hmm. why aren't more people doing what Coach Wright's doing with all of this, the, the different program building stuff? But what's some other unique things that sure. you guys do that, that you look around and you're saying, hey, we we, we do this differently than anybody else? Uh, I think we we added a redshirt coordinator this year. I, I think what we have done cool. also with building our staff out. So we have a, a full-time position to graduate assistants and a part-time position. And then our, like I said, that's only counting myself, that's five people. So then we have eight, what will be 10 people next year. Just the way that we are thinking about reshuffling our staff around, you know, and we're actually considering, you know, kicking the idea around of, of hiring a, a strength coach in our full-time position, because it's such a, it's such a piece for us to be able to make a jump on our competition, but also just for the sheer benefit of the players that we have in our program. Like just a strictly that person is responsible to make sure that our guys are eating well, they're moving well, they're running well, they're lifting really, really heavy weight mm -hmm. uh, and making sure that they're ready to go out and then be taught the more advanced skills of the game. Uh, I think that's important because there are so many and I'm learning it more now than than obviously I ever have. But there's so many movement deficiencies that limit guys ability to to play at their full potential. Right. So why, why would I not try to find a way to mitigate that? And, and I think that's the way to do it. But then getting back to, you know, some of the positions that we've created, we had, uh, we had a video coordinator. He was only here for a couple of months, ended up getting scooped up by the Texas Rangers. But, nice. uh, you know, the work that he did was outstanding and really, you know, we're still keeping in contact with him. They're just ending up there uh, at spring training now. But, you know, he did incredible work and he really, I feel like in a short time, moved our program forward. We have a media relations assistant. Uh, Michael Ader does, you know, when you see the the digital content that we're putting out as far as videos and things, that's coming from Michael Ader. So Michael was not a baseball player. He, he has an interest in sport journalism, and we created a position here for him to be able to build a resume so that when he wants to go to grad school or when he wants to go on to a some sort of a professional setting, he's got a resume that he can hand over to somebody and show the growth that he had from year one to year four. And I would argue that his ability to do that and what he's taking off of our plate allows us to do our job even better. And then the the most recent addition is is Ian McDonald in our redshirt coordinator role. You know, we have a we have a history of redshirting anywhere in the states back to my Concord days, but redshirting anywhere from from five to I think this year it's thirteen guys. Okay. So when we go on the road, even at practice, a lot of times at practice. Uh, in the past, it's been like, all right, just jump in with this group and you'll get your reps. Well, that that's a disservice to that kid because you're you're telling them let's let's invest in your career, and then you're saying, but you're going to do it at a slower rate than everybody else. 
So what we started to do last year, probably version 1.0, was just kind of giving guys another year, letting them lift another day a week. Version 2.0 was last year where we tried to create more competitive environments. Now we're on to version 3.0 of of having someone who's over their development as it goes throughout the year. So those guys go through monthly testing on specific measurements, you know, physical measurements, whether it's their 60, their shuttle run time, their long jump, broad jump, whatever. Like Ian has done it. He's taken it and absolutely run with that exceeded my expectations in every category. And he has built a, a red shirt development process that we're able now to scale to each year that we have, we have red shirts. So that's an opportunity for us to invest in those guys even more mm-hmm. in order to be able to protect their career at bats or their career innings and just, just enrich their, their collegiate experience. So we're really excited about what he's doing in that respect. And, you know, we've got other stuff that's on the, that's on the docket to do, do in the future. But right now we're just trying to get really good at what we're doing and then, and then build off of that. Oh, that's awesome. And that's something that, man, it's, you are taking the player development side to a different level, especially when, when you hire somebody to do that with the guys that are redshirting mm-hmm. that you can turn them into really, really good players down the line. And, you know, for guys that, that redshirt, like you said, they, they're not developing at a rate that you want. And then someday you may rely on those guys and they're not where you need them to be. Well, we look at, we look at our into ourselves and go, well, we could have, we may have done a better job. And, and that's, that's really, really good. And yep. I like that a lot, but Take us through what you guys are doing this spring. And, you know, I always like mm-hmm. to see what other coaches are doing on their practice plans. So just kind of take us through what you guys are doing and how much time you're spending on what and, and what that looks like for you. Sure. So our uh, practice plans are quite visual. I mean, they, they look nice, all that good stuff like that. But then when you get down to the bare bones of what it looks like in season, it, it's, again, I'll, I'll say that it on paper it looks very underwhelming, but the application of what we're doing, I think, is is where the uh, is where the value is. So when our guys show up, they've got uh, the pitchers have their pre work that's built from the minor league strength coach that came through town. They've got that built. They go through their pro their throwing program, do whatever they need to do, and then they, their job is just to be ready for twenty seven outs. And then the position players are getting themselves ready. They'll go through their throwing and their dailies, and then we get into a uh, base running circuit. But then we get to 27 ounce. And this is really where I think, you know, 27, everybody knows what 27 ounce looks like. Mm-hmm. Most, some high schools do 21 ounce, whatever. But I think for us, we, it is almost a staple in our program because it's an opportunity for us to kind of get a, uh, to build competition inside of practice. Yeah. So competition in a, you know, in a group setting, I would say. So it's very hard, as you know, to, to build a competitive environment in the game, but it's, I don't want to say that it's easy, but, but 27 outs allows you to build a sense of urgency, if you will. So what we do with our 27 ounces, yeah, we'll put it in there for 15 minutes or 10 or 15 minutes, usually 10, but we don't adhere to the clock at that point. So if we get done in 10, great. We stay on time. Mm -hmm. If we don't, then we, we keep going. There have been days where we do 27 outs for two and a half hours. Because, and this was early in my career here, that it was sometimes it was a struggle. But mm-hmm. you know, there are years, there are days here, and even this, even the spring, that we've done it for thirty or forty minutes. So what we do is, if we don't make a clean out or make a clean play or we don't do what's expected, then we start the count over. I don't care if we're at twenty six; you started it over, do it again, get yourself to twenty six, and you drop the ball. Then we do it, do it again. 
So that's a way. And as you see, and there's a really cool part about this is what has happened with that is it, it, it builds some accountability for players as well, because I stopped resending an account myself a long time ago. And the players are the ones that say whether or not they're okay with it. That's awesome. So that was really where I knew I got it. Cause there was one day that I just, I took a little bit longer to say zero. And then somebody else yelled out zero. And I was like, all right, these guys got it somewhat figured out now that they are, what they're going to be okay with is eventually what they're going to end up with. So basically being able to put themselves in that position and, and playing in, in a somewhat manufactured pressured environment, I think is very important because we talk about playing clean baseball all the time. Mm-hmm. We talk about just doing your job and, and things like that. So then outside of that, we do a, a thing we call after we get done with that, we typically our BP is some variation of our defensive rep plan, which our defensive rep plan is, is something that came. It, and I remember, I remember where I was at. I remember who I was with when we talked about doing this. It was myself, Devin Smith, who's currently the recruiting coordinator at Concord, and Tim Bansells, who's program coordinator for Cal Ripken Senior Foundation now. Okay. Those two are on staff, and we were sitting in a hotel at, in Urbana, Ohio, and we were talking about how we could make our practice plans better. So what we did is we talked about building a batting practice plan that encompassed everything that you could think of and okay. that could be retooled. It could, you, could work, you could chunk the game down into small parts and put guys in a position to, if we needed to work on, if the shortstop needed to work on a ball in the hole and throwing it to third, then we could build that into that. So it's breaking it all down is kind of a talk for another day, but it is something that, and I'm happy to share that, share that plan with you and share it on social media and things like that. Basically that plan allows us to really cover everything that we need to cover. So there's some consistency with the way that when our guys show up in a, in a game week prep, type of environment for practice our guys understand what we're going to be doing but they don't you know we we can challenge them each day with a different objective so from top to bottom it involves pitchers bunting outfielding base running the whole the whole nine and it's really just a dressed up version of a batting practice plan okay but it's something that we're a little bit more intentional with how we pick groups and how we we choose to position fungos and how we choose to uh to chunk the game down into smaller parts so, and then typically our guys know like our Friday practice before a weekend series is typically going to be even shorter than a, a Monday through Thursday where it's going to be a show up. We're going to run through real quick dailies, do 27 outs, and then we'll take very scaled down modified version of our defensive rep plan. And then we're going to go try to compete at a high level on the weekend. So I love it. And I, I know as a, as a player, and as a coach now, that uh, kids love routines, and uh, once, sure. you, once you get them in that, then that's you're only going to get the best out of them. And so let's uh, let's go ahead and move forward with advice for first year head coaches or assistants who want to be head coaches someday. So if you're looking back at your first yourself, or if you're looking at some different guys who are taking their first job, uh, let's say tomorrow. Uh, well, let's say in the off season because then you'd have a whole off season to get ready, but. Uh, what what advice would you give them? And and if you could go back and talk to yourself, what advice would you give yourself? Mm-hmm. This was actually the, the the first piece of advice is a piece of advice that my college coach, who very, very I would consider him a mentor, I consider him a friend, that he gave me when I I went from being a player to being a student assistant. He said, "Be yourself." It's something that I heard, but I didn't adhere to. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that being a coach meant 
you know, sticking your chest out and yelling and doing all that sort of stuff like that. So early in my coaching career, I wasn't myself. Uh, and I think just be authentic. It, people see right through when you're not. Uh, in my career, certainly, I, I would say it took off when I had an opportunity to to really just be who I was. So I'm not a different person at home than I am at practice. I don't know if that's a good thing for my kids or my players. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't, awesome. I don't know who gets the, the biggest benefit, but <laughs> but that's just just being myself in every relationship that I have. I think is is very important. Uh, and then the other the other piece that I would give, and especially in the in the age that we're in, where everybody's sharing their thoughts and theories on social media, is is essentially respect results and respect what you're doing and respect how your theories impact results. I, I think that's the biggest thing. A lot of people have very fancy and dressed up ideas of what can work, but it's like what I tell our guys. This is another piece of the staff stuff that I probably didn't touch on that I will now. That I expect our guys to be active on social media, not from a self-promotion standpoint, but from a program development standpoint and a program promotion standpoint. Because now when we pick up the phone, people don't, they already know about it. Sure. So, but the same way that it's almost, and I liken it to this, I liken it to a professor who works at a university who's expected to publish their, their research. There is no better dissertation group, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or, or uh, people that are going to defend your, or people who are going to try to pick apart your thesis than, than the public. Sure. Uh, you know, people are pretty, pretty free and easy with their opinions. So that's a really good way to, to make sure that you are, your processes and the things that you believe in that you, you've tried to poke as many holes in them as you can, because if you're very flippant with the way that you go about teaching our guys, then it's going to show up on the field. So if you are putting something out that you are willing to have shared to the public and you think strongly enough about it that you know it's not going to get picked apart, then it's probably a pretty damn good process Mm. for our guys to be using in practice. So it's also another opportunity. Like you think about uh, the times that I've I've spoken at at conventions and clinics and things like that. I have, it's an excellent way for us to get our ideas down on paper so that we think about what it is we actually talk about. And we're more intentional with our words after we do that. So when we we challenge our guys to to publish their information, we want to make sure that it is it is based in some sort of evidence. And that's a really good way to to me. That's a really good way to challenge yourself as a young coach, because I know everybody wants to get their ideas out and they want to do all this and they want to do all that. And I'm I love it. I love getting on and watching. Love getting on to social media and seeing what other people are thinking, how other people are thinking, how they're challenging their own ideas. Because it just makes me better and makes our program better as well. So I would challenge people to not be shy with their information, not be shy with their opinions, but also be prepared for feedback uh, when you're in that situation. So sure. that would be that would be another piece of it. And I think too, especially in in the phase that we're in right now, is for young coaches, and this is I'm not certainly not an old coach at all, but uh, respect the fastball. So and what I mean by that is is basically as a pitcher, respect your ability to 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 have your your fastball impact the outcome of an at bat. So you need to be able to command your fastball. Mm-hmm. The best pitchers that I've seen at our level are the ones. They're not the guys that throw the hardest. Being able to throw hard is 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 just a tool in the toolbox to get hitters out, right? But the ability to to execute pitches, especially with your fastball, sets everything up. And, and the way that I liken this, I said this to, to one of our pitchers the other day, is that 
I asked him how many pitches he had. And he said, three. I said, well, actually you have six. And he, he kind of looked at me like super puzzled. And he's like, what do you mean? I said, you've got a fastball, a curveball, and a changeup when you're ahead. And you got a fastball and a curveball and a changeup when you're behind. Yep. And the, the impact of those pitches are very different depending on where you're at in the, in the count. And when you look at when people get behind is typically because of their fastball, right? So that's what I've noticed over the course of time. So that's okay. where I want our guys to respect. I want our pitching coaches. I want our pitchers. I want, you know, I want people to respect the fastball. And then also on the offensive side. So you see all this stuff with, and I, and, and I don't say all this stuff like I'm dogging because we do a lot of it too, where you're trying to create game-like environments. And you're trying to do all these things like that. But at the same time, our guys aren't prepared to hit fastballs. So I don't want to spend, I don't want to spend a ton of time in our BP and I'm wrestling with the idea of what needs to happen in batting practice anymore. You know, I'm still feeling the effects of throwing a simulated game before a midweek game, yeah. midweek game the other day. Like um, yeah, well, my shoulder and my back doesn't, but <laughs> the, <laughs> you know, it was good and it was a really good environment to put them, put them into, but I feel like your batting practice needs to be about respecting your ability to hit a fastball. Uh, because that's where, Absolutely. you know, when we hit, when we hit doubles and we, we, we hit extra base hits and we hit a ball hard, it's because we're technically, and I'm going to throw out a very arbitrary number. The majority of time, maybe six out of 10 times, because somebody left the ball over the plate mm -hmm. with a fastball. So being able to respect that and, and understand the value of being good with your fastball on both the offensive and the, and the pitching side of the game, I think is, is something that as a young coach, I wish I had to learn quicker. Because I was I was the one that was gonna you know break it into it. Oh, I'm gonna teach everybody a great breaking ball. Or we got to make sure we can respect the breaking ball and offensively. Well, I mean, you don't typically swing at too many breaking balls if you're doing a good job of the fastball early in the count. Right. So being able to layer layer your approach when it comes to pitching or hitting, uh, I think is very important in that respect. Right. And you know, I I talk to our hitters all the time about you know if mm -hmm. if we can't hit the fastball, why would they throw anything else? And right. so if we can, and what, and you're talking about, and I think most coaches who work with pitchers talk about establishing the fastball. Well, mm -hmm. if you can take that away, then they're going to be scrambling. So yep. I, I really like that. And, and I'm, I'm on the same way, same wavelength as you there, but mm -hmm. I want to know what's something that you've learned lately. That's gotten you really excited. Uh, I am excited to manage the skill acquisition phase as it overlaps with the competition phase. And I don't use those words doesn't mean I'm an expert in skill acquisition. I don't want you to think that, but I am, we have done so much from a player development standpoint on trying to move the needle on making our guys better. That again, there's, there needs to be, and I'll, I'll use the adapter analogy. There needs to be an adapter from the, the stuff that you're doing and how it results or how it relates into, into winning games. So that's the thing that, that is most exciting to me is how to take how to take these new skills that we're learning and make sure that we can actually go out and compete with them at a high level. It's a challenge that I'm really excited about. And I think that's what excites me the most about it. So that's where, and I'm not sure if you're feeling, you're seeing it at the level that you're seeing it, but you see people that are working on, well, I want to hit the ball harder. I want to do this. I want to do that. Well, again, your, your ability to do these things is irrelevant, is irrelevant until you can make it actionable in a game setting. So that's where I'm really, really excited about making sure that there, there needs to be clear communication on what they're learning from a player development standpoint and, and refining it into the ability to help us win. No, I love it. And I think that's something that's really, really good. And 
You've mentioned a couple of times that you guys have staff meetings and you share resources. So do you mind sharing some of your favorite resources that have come up a couple of different times in your staff meetings or just some of your favorite resources that have changed your coaching career? Sure, sure. So obviously we have used uh, Ahead of the Curve podcast as well. We've used uh, several different other podcasts, Sheets' podcast, uh, Top Coach. We've done some stuff with the driveline stuff as well. Uh, but me personally, and I, I've myself and Ryan Hunt have both used some of the TED Talks. So I, I am a little bit different, and then I'll try to just like, I, I just want to hear from something random and see if there are draw any parallels to it. So I, I do listen to a lot of TED Talks. Okay. Uh, but as far as authors, I anything by Daniel Pink. I think the dude, he, he, he communicates incredibly well. And if you ever have a chance, listen to his one three twenty podcast, he gets one, one guest, ask them three questions in 20 minutes. Uh, and it's, and they talk about one book, sorry, but, uh, it just, just really good and a really interesting thing too. And I, I'm a big fan of Adam Grant and the, the Twitter, Richard Feynman's, uh, Twitter account is outstanding. Okay. Uh, just talking about the teachings of him. But no, that's 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 a lot of what it is, and we try to find different different areas and different resources, things that are a little bit outside of the box, to to make sure that we can challenge ourselves and, and really think about things differently. So, you know, we'll look at at anything and everything we can that we feel like is is going to be of benefit to us. So we'll have you know, we have a, a group chat. We're starting to use Slack now as a as a as a staff, and oh, okay, cool. we'll uh, we'll share we'll share different books and podcasts and articles and things like that. So I just like, I, I like it as a conversation starter more so than, you know, having it necessarily as a book club. Like we, we, uh, we end up just, they'll read something, they'll give their synopsis and then we'll, we'll be able to chat about it. So oh, that's great. That's kind of what we, yeah, that's kind of what we do there, but I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a information junkie in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. and sometimes, sometimes a little too much. Sometimes I get, uh, uh, I try to, I don't try to, but I end up probably taking on too much and then just trying to chill out on a little bit. So <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> no, I'm right there with you. I feel like every, every moment of my day is packed with podcasts. And, and so I, to be honest with you, I, at lunch, I've started to take 10 minutes of mindfulness, like mindfulness training yeah. and not think yeah. about anything. And it is, so, it's so much oh, harder than, than people give it credit for, but I can uh, imagine man, it's, I've just, I have to, cause I have so many things swirling around. I'm sure you do too. And I, I think a lot yeah. of people do, but that's something that, that I definitely encourage people to do is just try and sit for five minutes, breathe and don't think about anything. And if you can do it, let me know how you did it because I'm still working on it myself, but I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I'm scared. I'm scatterbrained as it is. So like doing something like that, I think might, it might do a good job and kind of refocusing me. So no doubt. I love the tip. No doubt. Well, Coach Wright, I appreciate everything that you've done for me personally and spreading the word of the good podcast and, you know, pushing me to become better every single day. But I just want to end it with, is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? I, yes, I, I am the, I am the product of an incredible upbringing. I am in, and I'm also the product of an incredible wife and two beautiful, beautiful children. Uh, they're the absolute center of my universe, and I would not have an opportunity to do what I'm doing if it wasn't for the sacrifices that they make every day. Because uh, you know how it can be as a as a coach. A lot of times, you know, you can be a ghost through certain parts of the year, and just the support and the love and the and the things that they do is just beyond measure. So, so I can't thank them enough. Uh, and then also our our staff. You know, I talk we talked a lot about staff development, but I do genuinely want to share that 
I think I have an incredible staff from top to bottom. Uh, They care. They're just good human beings. uh, And they all of them have very, very bright futures in whatever path they want to choose. So I am very thankful, Jonathan, for you having me on the podcast. I'm a longtime listener. So keep up the great work. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which can include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.